At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled because I have back with me today the one and only Dr. Micah Sando from The Ohio State University, and listeners will be impressed that he has ventured out solo without his fellows today. So it's just me and Mike, and we have a really exciting topic. We're going to talk about the total artificial heart, um, which Mike has become uh, somewhat of an expert on and is going to share a lot of really great information, not only for folks who may be dealing with these in terms of implantation, but for anyone out there who may have a patient in the future who has one of these and is coming in for non-cardiac surgery. So, Mike, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, Thank you so much, Jed. It's always a pleasure to be on ACRAG. Um, All right. Well, let's jump right in. Um, And I should say, uh, of course, folks who are uh, frequent listeners will know that you are a professor of uh, cardiac anesthesiology at Ohio State University. Um, And uh, so obviously very, uh, very much in the know about these topics. So let's start with the very basics. Uh, when we say total artificial heart, I mean, you know, in a way, this is kind of like the dream, right, for an organ that needs to be transplanted. I mean, if we could just make a kidney or make a liver, uh, we would be able to, you know, do away with the waiting list, right? So a heart is another thing we transplant into people who need a transplant. Um, and it sounds like when we say total artificial heart, we, we are making one. Is that right? Is this a, a heart we can transplant into someone that is uh, created from scratch? All right. So um, I, I would like to say, first of all, you know, uh, at Ohio State, you know, we uh, we have a pretty robust um, total, uh, mechanical support and transplant program. It's led by um, Dr. Nahush Mokadam and Dr. Brian Whitson. So I give a lot of credit to, you know, surgeons because, you know, based on their really robust program, uh, we on the anesthesia, you know, aspect of things can learn a lot about these um uh, technologies such as the total artificial heart. So, so essentially, what is a total artificial heart? It's actually a mechanical circulatory support device um, that replaces the ventricle. So, uh, despite the fact that it's named a total artificial heart, it's a total artificial heart because it takes over the physiologic functions of the heart. But the device still uh, it has two ventricles that are um, essentially uh, anastomosed to the left atria and the right atria and then um the you know the right pump is connected to the pulmonary artery and then the left pump is you know connected systemically you know to the aorta so it's a pretty phenomenal device that essentially uh provides uh circulatory support uh it's the it's a durable pump that's available for patients with biventricular heart failure so it's different from you know left ventricular uh devices intraaortic balloon pumps in the sense that this is the only device that provides circulatory support to both ventricles. And a little historical perspective on the total artificial. So the device was uh, designed in the 19, uh, late 50s to 1960s uh, by a phenomenal um, a surgeon from Argentina, Dr. Uh, Domingo Leoda. 
And he was working with the great uh, Dr. DeBakey over in Houston. And then they, they, they essentially um, created a total artificial heart. But the first implant uh, was by uh, another famous uh, cardiac surgeon, Dr. Denton Cooley. It was in 1969. And it was in a patient um, who also a lot of you know people in cardiac surgery would know about, Mr. Haskell uh, Karp. Who had a refractory biventricular heart failure? You know, they he underwent surgery. They did resection of some of the ventricles, but after they put the heart back together, you know, they didn't have enough, you know, myocardium to essentially provide enough, you know, stroke volume to support the patient. So it was either the patient, sorry to say, you know, passed away on the table, or uh, they implant uh, a device that could support him. Uh, as a bridge to uh, heart transplantation. So they didn't implant the device in 1969. The patient did well for three days, and then he ended up, um, you know, undergoing um, heart transplantation, and he did very well. So it was a great, it was a great uh, bridge to heart transplantation. And um, since then, the device has been refined over the years, and it's still what we use today. Really? So that same idea. Now, I don't know why I had in my head that this is new, but I guess not really, right? 1969. Is it newly kind of um, being used more or did I just not know about it? Uh, perfect. So uh, after 1969, the next implant was in the 1980s. And then uh, it's it basically underwent a few refinements by different companies. And Syncardia, the, the company that owns the Total Fisher Heart now, received FDA approval in 2004 uh, to use, you know, the, uh, total official heart as a bridge to heart transplantation. So it's been around, actually, it's, uh, it's been around since 1969. The technology, even though it's been refined, is pretty much simple. Uh, we'll go over the design of the pumps, uh, you know, um, in a few, but it's essentially not that different from, uh, what was designed by, you know, Dr. Uh, Leota and, you know, Dr. DeBakey and obviously Dr. Denton Cooley helped with the refinements too. And it's, it's really a phenomenal pump. It has its limitations and it also has a lot of, um, value to patients with biventricular heart failure because these patients really, do not have any other options. Uh, it's either you keep them in the hospital and you put, you know, a mechanical circulatory support that supports both the right ventricle and the left ventricle, such as a, such as a VA ECMO. But unfortunately, the downside of something like VA ECMO is the patients have to be bed bound till a heart's available. So if it's going to take a week, a month, you essentially have the patient in the hospital uh, waiting the heart. However, uh, the total official heart the newer system has a freedom driver, a portable driver that the patient can undergo implant and then can go home and come back whenever there's a transplant. Uh, there's actually a report of a patient living for six years uh, with a total artificial heart and final, uh, you know, as a bridge to transplantation. So it's a very durable pump. And the one-year survival range is close to, you know, 60%. And it's all dependent on, you know, the center. So the experience of the center makes a huge difference. Uh, obviously, the experience of, you know, anesthesiologists, surgeons, all the uh, the heart team in, in these centers impact, you know, survival and outcomes. Wow. Amazing. Six years. All right. So how many, I mean, give us a general idea. How many global <laughs> implants do you think have there been? I mean, obviously, you said there was one in 1969, one in the 80s. It's like, what are we talking about? Hundreds, thousands? Yeah. Uh, so, as of, I think, a month ago, there were 2,030 global implants. 
uh, and of the t- uh, 2,030, 400 patients had been discharged home with the Freedom Driver. So it's it's uh, it's still you know not a huge population considering that we have over 100,000 patients with you know terminal heart failure that need um, heart transplantation. And also to put in perspective, we only transplant close to 4,000 hearts a year. So we have a lot of patients that would benefit from, you know, with biventricular heart failure and stage, you know, biventricular heart failure that would benefit from such a device as they await, you know, heart transplantation. All right. So we've talked about in the past a lot of different mechanical circulatory support systems. Uh, we've talked about the Impella. Certainly you've talked about ECMO, LVADs. Uh, I don't know that we've done a specific episode on intraaortic balloon pumps, but folks know those are out there. So there's a lot of mechanical circulatory support systems. How does this differ from those? Well, excellent. So when you talk about, um, I'll, I'll just uh, explain a little bit about heart failure. So there's a little more personalization to heart failure definition. So it used to be that we say heart failure. Now there's heart failure with preserved EF, heart failure with, you know, um, with low EF, uh, reduced ejection fraction. And when you start characterizing these patients, those with left ventricular um, dysfunction, so end-stage left ventricular heart failure, right, with preserved or mild right ventricular dysfunction, these patients have a lot of options. So they can get a left ventricular assist device. And the left ventricular assist device essentially assists the function of the left ventricle, but the native left ventricle is left in place. Uh, same thing if you put an intraaortic balloon pump in. You essentially place the intraaortic balloon pump in a retrograde fashion into the aorta, and then uh, it assists both, you know, it basically inflates in diastole and diastole, and it, it, it supplies both the right and left ventricle with blood flow and assists and also helps unload the left ventricle to some scale. So these, uh, and then the Impella also um, assists, we have two Impella platforms. We have the Impella support for the right, which P, and then we have three or four Impella supports for the left, uh, such as the CP, the five, five and a half, and the LD, and they provide support for the left ventricle. So we have these different platforms, but they all work by keeping the native heart in place. So they assist the native failing heart, but they do not totally uh, replace uh, the native ventricle. So so the total artificial heart is a very unique uh, device because it's the only one that really um, functions without any native ventricle. It doesn't rely on any native conduction. It does not rely on any um, uh, native, uh, essentially, uh, heartbeat. So you program the beat rate, uh, and then it also has uh, a vacuum assistance for, you know, filling, and then it also uses a drive pressure to push, you know, blood out of it. So it's a totally unique device, uh, and that's why it's really implying a few centers who have where they have, you know, the expertise both in anesthesiology uh, and surgery. So these patients can undergo, you know, um, safe uh, surgeries. And then you need a perfusion team and also uh, nurses, um, physical therapists, so they can help rehabilitate these patients because there is no destination therapy for the total official heart. So every patient that undergoes a total official heart is being bridged uh, to undergo uh, heart transplantation at some time. So it, it's just a unique device by itself. And and I would say that uh, currently the only FDA-approved 
uh, total artificial heart is the Syncardia total artificial heart. However, there are other companies that are working to um, to create other devices in this space. So there's a Carmat, which is a French company, uh, and their device was uh, received uh, approval in Europe uh, as a total official heart. And then also the BivaCore, which is being investigated in the United States. And and Duke University just um, uh, implanted a Carmat uh, total official heart a year ago, and I think University of Louisville has also implanted too. So the FDA trial for uh, Carmat approval in the United States, I think it's the, the goal for enrollment is about 10 patients. Uh, they've enrolled, I think, three. Uh, and hopefully we would have another artificial heart, um, you know, in uh, for commercial use pretty soon. Are there substantial differences, do you know, Mike, between the uh, Syncardia and the others? Yeah, excellent. So, so the Syncardia pump is pneumatically driven. So it relies on air delivery to airframe to, you know, eject uh, blood out of the uh, of the ventricle, and he uses um, vacuum to help fill the you know the the, the pump in diastole. The Carmat is pretty unique because it uses a it uses fluid, so it's more it doesn't use air; it uses fluid. And also, the Syncardia has uh, mechanical valves, so it requires a higher scale of uh, anticoagulation. So it has four mechanical valves; they're called Synhal valves. In the, in the native, uh, quote-unquote, tricuspid pulmonic and the mitral and aortic positions, uh, whereas the, the, the CARMAT device uses bioprosthetic valves. So uh, it's more, the CARMAT device is more hemocompatible, so there's less hemolysis, uh, which may translate to less uh, thromboembolic complications, which is one of the Achilles' heels of uh, the syncardia pump. And uh, it also... Um, it's it's also pretty neat in the sense I haven't uh, personally uh, implanted one or been in where they implanted one, but by reading about it, it has autoregulation. So Syncardia's pump does not autoregulate. So if you need a higher uh, stroke volume or a higher heart rate, it has to be programmed. But the, the CARMAT has the ability, it has um, integrated sensors, and it can basically modulate, you know, the rate the fill volume and other hemodynamic, you know, parameters. And then the BivaCore, that is, um, it's, 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 it's uh, designed similar to the continuous flow, similar to the continuous flow VATS where it has like a um, magnetically levitated, you know, uh, impeller. And then it uses that pump to pump blood both to the right, uh, sorry, to the pulmonic circulation and to the systemic circulation. So these are really phenomenal platforms that hopefully will be available for use, you know, pretty soon. Right. Yeah. And so the, it's almost like a rate responsive pacemaker, right. Is what you're describing with the, um, the one that's rate that's responsive so that it can sense when a patient is perhaps exercising and would increase the cardiac output, which seems pretty important if someone's going to have this and go home and live a life. Yes. Yes. So yes. Yeah. The, the, the combat device provides the added benefit of being, you know, the ability to auto-regulate. So, yeah, it can rate, it can res- respond to the hemodynamic needs of the patient. So if they need a higher cardiac output, it can, you know, supply that. And if the patient is sleeping, it can also de-escalate the support. So it's um, it's pretty neat. Um, uh, you know, the Duke guys in Louisville are to have experienced this. And hopefully, knowing my surgeons, they will bring it to Ohio State soon. Very cool. All right. So what patients are eligible for a total artificial heart? 
Yes. So the total facial heart is, it has actually a wide eligibility. Um, so patients with end-stage, you know, left ventricular failure and end-stage right ventricular failure have no other durable pump options. Uh, so these patients essentially are candidates for the total artificial heart. But other patients include, uh, for example, if you have a patient who comes for, who undergoes a left ventricular assist device, and over time, if the right ventricle fails, then the right ventricle, the native right ventricle, cannot supply the LVAD with its preload. So then they end up in right heart failure. So patients with LVADs who, de- who develop RV dysfunction are uh, candidates for uh, the total artificial heart. Uh, other group of patients are VAD patients who develop pump thrombosis, um, which uh, is refractory to um, standard approaches to, you know, to, um, to treatment with um, either, you know, thrombolytics or um, surgical techniques. Uh, and also we have a few VAD patients who have refractory ventricular arrhythmias. So patients with VADs who undergo refract, who develop refractory ventricular uh, tachycardia and refractory ventricular fibrillation, because of these ventricular arrhythmias, they cannot, the right ventricle cannot supply the left ventricle and the pump with the volume it needs to eject to support the patient's, you know, cardiac output. So there, there's a wide scale. And then uh, currently there are a lot of um, uh, patients with adult, you know, congenital heart disease who are actually undergoing TH implantation. So um, we have failed Fontans who are, you know, receiving TH. Uh, because when it's time, when these um, congenital uh, palliative surgeries fail as an adult, uh, LVADs, if you have a single ventricle physiology, LVADs may not be enough to, you know, support the patient's circulation, especially when they have like a passive uh, delivery of blood, like, you know, the, from the Fontan into the pulmonary circulation. So once the Fontan is failing, if you have an LVAD, it's really uh, futile to support the hemodynamics. So uh, the TAH becomes one of the few platforms that can support the patient till there's an organ available uh, for implantation. So it's still not a destination therapy. They cannot be sent home forever, even though, you know, people have lived with it for uh, three to six years because um, some of these patients have high panel reactive antibodies. So trying to match them for donor organ takes longer than usual. Um, so we, we really don't have an idea about the longevity of the pump, but we know that it can you know support the patient for up to six years. Right. Are there any absolute contraindications, patients who just can't get this? Yes. So in my opinion, the most uh, absolute, absolute contraindication is a patient that is not a candidate for anticoagulation. So uh, the TAH, because of the four mechanical uh, valves, the Sinhal valves, and the also the, uh, the it has a diaphragm that separates the egg chamber. It's a polyurethane, four-layered polyurethane diaphragm that separates the blood chamber from the air chamber. So it's not as hemocompatible. So you have a risk of thrombus forming in the either on the diaphragm layer or also on the mechanical valve. So um, they need Coumadin with a goal INR of two and a half, two point five to three. So if the patient is really not a candidate for anticoagulation therapy, they cannot receive the syncardia total artificial art. And hopefully the CARMAT device would be the option for uh, patients that do not uh, meet anticoagulation um, uh, criteria. And then you also have to be on an antiplatelet. So 
most centers, uh, including ours, use um, um, either a tag or a road tab, so a viscoelastic testing to ensure that these patients really um, develop, you know, platelet inhibition uh, from aspirin. So, and the dosing of aspirin ranges from 80, you know, the basic 81 to 324, 325 milligrams. It's more based on the, um, it's, it's a little bit outside the scope of us anesthesiologists, but most surgeons, um, dose aspirin based on the patient's response, uh, with viscoelastic, uh, testing of the platelet mapping. Right. So you have to be able to tolerate lifelong anti- anticoagulation and Antiplatelet. Yes, yes, yes. It's essentially, so you have to be able to receive anticoagulation antiplatelet. One other relative contraindication to the TAH, which is a little more relative, is uh, a lot of times the TAH is implanted as really uh, a late stage life saving device. So if a patient has developed, you know, right sided heart failure with uh, cardiohepatic and cardiorenal failure. A lot of times when you put a TAH in, they may not do well. So some centers uh, view this as a relative contraindication uh, to implant the device because it, it doesn't help rehabilitate the patient because the patient may be too sick uh, for the pump. And also uh, totally terminal right heart failure is debatable, but I think that's actually, you know, depending on the, the center, I think that's one of the needs for the total artificial heart. It's just... Analogous to LVATS VA ECMO, when you identify a patient in extremis for biventricular heart failure, uh, it's important for the heart team to, heart team to uh, get together and implant these devices sooner, like have a strategy in place rather than wait till you develop multi-system organ failure and put the device in and hope for the device to save the patient because it provides circulatory support, but it does not really help bring, you know, Sorry to say, like, you know, really that kidney's dead liver back to life. Right. So, Mike, this sounds like the device's primary or really is, is two ventricles. It's a right ventricle and a left ventricle. You said it's anastomose to the native atria. So uh, is it pretty much passive flow through the atria to these ventricles? Or do you, still, do you get an atrial kick? Is there a way in which the native, uh, even with all this stuff and as to most of them, do the native atria still give you a natural kick? Do you get a, an atrial beat? And then along those same lines, you know, is there a way that the device can sense the atrial beat and then kind of sync up so you have some AV synchrony or, or not? Oh, perfect. So I'll just go over a little bit of the implantation, if that's okay. So yeah, please. So- yeah, so when the patient, so from the anesthesiologist's point of view, uh, hemodynamic monitoring is critical. Um, obviously, any patient with uh, profound cardiogenic shock on multi- multiple inotropes and vasopressors come by official heart would have an arterial line in and they'll have a central line in. It's quite critical to avoid either placing, placement of a pulmonary artery catheter or if there's a pulmonary artery catheter in place to remove it. Because the the, the uh, mechanical valves of the uh, total artificial heart uh, can totally get um, dysfunctional if a PA catheter lodges into it, and that would totally is the function of the pump, and unfortunately, the patient would arrest. So during implantation, it's re- the surgeons obviously would guide you and make sure you don't place a PA catheter. However, if you encounter a patient with a total artificial heart who comes to your hospital and you want to place, you know, 
uh, hemodynamic monitors, it's very critical. Do not, do not put a PA catheter in. And if you're going to place a central line, um, I would say it's better to use a femoral axis, right? So that your wire potential would not even get close to the, the sinhole valve in the tricuspid, you know, position. So I know this is a little bit of an aside, but this is really critical. And when we do lines in these patients, we use fluoroscopy guidance. And then we also use transesophageal echo so you can monitor the relationship between the guide wire and the, uh, the uh, mechanical valve in the uh, tricuspid you know, position. So surgical anastomosis wise, uh, it starts off by doing a bolectomy. So the native right ventricle, the native left ventricle are totally resected. And then the coronary sinus is also oversewn. And uh, some patients that have like baseline atrial fibrillation, uh, or any atrial myopathy with um, large, you know, left atrial appendages, uh, routinely the surgeons would oversew the left atrial appendage because there's really no contribution of the left atrium mechanically to the filling of the pumps. Uh, so there is no AV conduction after you implant uh, these ventricles. It's totally a rigid plastic, and there's no electrical communication between either the left atrium and the left um TAH ventricle or the right atrium and the right TAH ventricle. So no communication, atrial, right atrium, uh, anastomose to the inflow of the right TAH ventricle. And then the pulmonary artery is quickly, they have these uh, quick connects and a graft. So you sew a graft uh, to the pulmonary artery uh, because the pulmonic uh, you know, valve is gone. So, so you saw the, you know, the, 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 the graft from the flow of the right TH ventricle to the pulmonic, you know, artery. And then you saw the mitral to the inflow of the, you know, the TH left ventricle. And then you, uh, anastomose the aorta, uh, to the outflow of the TH left ventricle. So there's no native ventricles involved for mechanical ventricles. Totally the beat rate or the heart rate is controlled by the, you know, the implanter. And since there's no autoregulation, the TAH uh, beat rate or the heart that is has to be greater than 110 to 130. So you range, most of the time you, you know, you put it close to 120. And the rationale for that is if you end up in a hypovolemic state at some point, the, the, the TH does not sense it to really augment its beat rate. It has to be programmed. So, okay, a couple of things, Mike. So the there's just passive flow from the uh, venous system through the native right atrium into this right ventricle of the TAH, but no no component of atrial keg, no, mechan- no electrical conduction at all. It's just flowing through the atrium through a valve, and then at some point that valve closes as the, as the flow goes out into the pulmonary artery. Yes. So, yeah, so it's a passive fill-in, but the uh, syncardia has designed it with uh, a little vacuum assistance. So you can turn a little bit of vacuum on to kind of help fill the uh, the pump. Um, the, the, the one thing that I want, you know, the audience to understand is, the the um, the vacuum only applies. So there's the diaphragm. You have air in one part of the chamber, and then you have blood in the other aspect of the chamber. And the blood and the air do not ever uh, interface. It's the diaphragm. So when the suction is applied, it basically empties all the air that's you know based on the scale of the suction. It would empty all the air that's within 
the air, you know, the air chamber of the TAH ventricle. And by so doing, it, it does assist with, you know, pulling blood either from the, you know, left atrium into the, the left ventricular pump or the right atrium into the right ventricular pump. And the reality intraoperatively when you implant a device, we, uh, the goal is not to turn the suction, uh, the vacuum assistance on because you may also entrain air into the pump. So this is, uh, the use of vacuum assistance is usually after chest is closed or a little later down the line when most of the anastomoses are uh, a little bit healed so you don't entrain air within, you know, the TAH. And to eject blood out of the pump, the, uh, the pneumatic system, the, it has a driver which basically delivers, you know, the compressed air to the ventricle and then the compressed air would, push blood out into the pulmonic and into the systemic circulations. And, and the, the pressures are variable because obviously the right-sided pressures, uh, the right side or the, uh, sorry, the system is a lower pressure system. So you typically would use a driving pressure of maybe 80 to 100, 110 to facilitate ejection of blood into the um, the pulmonary circulation. And then on the left ventricular side, you may use pressures from 180 to 200, 210 to facilitate, you know, facilitate the delivery of blood, you know, from the TAH. And I would also emphasize one other critical point that the TAH, um, if, if there's one statement that, you know, we, everybody wants to take away from this podcast, it's a partial fill but full eject uh, mechanical circulatory support. It's the only one that works based on this principle because there are two platforms um, for the syncardia. There's a 70cc uh, ventricle and a 50cc ventricle. The problem is if you fill the ventricle all the way to eat to the maximum capacity, you end up with back pressure and that would cause, so if you have a 70cc ventricle in the left ventricular position, I mean, you always use the same ventric- ventricular capacity on the right and left. But for this example, let's say you have a 70cc ventricle in the left ventricular, you know, uh, position. And then if you fill it to 70cc capacity, there would be extra preload that would not be able to be delivered to the patient. And then that will lead to uh, pulmonary edema. So it's very critical not to exceed the fill-in. So if it's a 70cc pump, your goal fill volume is 50 to 60 mLs. And if you have the 50 cc ventricle, your goal for the fill volume is 40. So you give yourself a safety volume of about 10 mLs so you don't overfill the pump. Makes sense. Okay. Um, And this is obviously placed under bypass, right? Cardiopulmonary bypass. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Asando's answer to that question and a lot more. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And the question was, are these placed under cardiopulmonary bypass? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So a patient comes in, yeah, you put them on a cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, do the cardiectomies, implant this, uh, and then implant the, you know, both ventricles, and then you use transesophageal echo to guide you uh, come off bypass. Great. All right. So we talked about the components of being the two ventricles and the valves. Um, and we talked about kind of how it works um, and the fact that with the new driver, patients can go home. What parameters does the total artificial heart driver monitor, uh, especially if patients are going home? What is it showing? Do, do they have to make any adjustments? How does this all work? Uh, perfect. So so there are two drivers. There's the, the companion two driver, which is the in-hospital big bulky you know, system. Uh, that provides the... Uh, the, the clinicians with a lot of parameters, but uh, the most important are the beat uh, rate, which is essentially the pulse. So a TH patient actually does not have an electrocardiogram. It's an isoelectric waveform. Uh, the rate, the beat rate is selected, which can be, you know, for example, 120. And then you have the fill volume. So the fill volumes would be, uh, this is on the, I'm, I'm basically describing the companion two driver. So we show you uh, filling of the left, uh, ventricle, and it would also show you filling of the right ventricle. And then you have the um, the uh, the drive pressures, and you also have the uh, the vacuum, you know. As, and then you can see, and then it has graphical representations of the filling, and you know, so is it uh, are you partially filling, and are you fully ejecting? All of that will be shown on the on the console and then you end up having a stroke volume and a cardiac you know output um based on you know the uh the fill volumes and the beat rate um when it comes to the freedom driver uh the freedom driver does not really give you that many uh parameters it's basically the fill uh it doesn't even give you the fill volume it gives you the beat rate and it also gives you the cardiac index and the and the stroke volume um, and it also has the ability to be powered not just by alternating current, but all batteries. It has two batteries. Uh, they give you two to three hours. And most patients are really, you know, educated that once you hit the two-hour limit, if you're using the Freedom Driver with your batteries, you should try as much as possible to look for an alternating so you can recharge your batteries because if you have battery failure, the pump would totally stop. Great. Not a good thing. All right. So how, uh, take us through how these are placed. Uh, perfect. Um, regarding the, the TH system or the. Yeah, the system itself. So they're obviously placed, you said they go in, they're under bypass, um, I guess we've covered a lot of this, but they, they're going to take out the ventricles, anastomose to the atria. I'm thinking more about like the anesthesia side. What, what, are, you, what are we doing on our end? Doing, as oh, okay, excellent. So, so yeah, so essentially as the and you have to be very mindful that these are really critical patients with biventricular failure. So your induction has to be really, really uh, cautiously done. These are not, if bad patients may be sick, but Total artificial heart patients have a higher scale of, you know, uh, of um, heart failure because 
if you get right heart, acute right or acute left heart failure, that could lead to major cardiovascular collapse. And then the patient may not even make it to the point of TAH implantation. So a very cautious induction. Uh, you want to have all the hemodynamic monitoring that you you need for such, you know, uh, a major case. Uh, transesophageal echocardiography is critical. You want to basically do an analysis to exclude any thrombus in any part of the cardiac chambers. Um, it doesn't matter if the native valves are dysfunctional because they are all coming out. They're all going to be resected. Um, if they have a PA catheter, essentially remove it. Uh, if they even have a central line, you just want to make sure that the central line is not encroaching into uh, the right atrium to the point that it may potentially uh, occlude the Sinhal valves after you know implantation. Um, then you know the surgeon would go on cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, at that point in time, you know you support your hemodynamics, but you also have to be mindful that most heart failure patients are on massive doses of vasopressors and inotropes, right? But as soon as you put a total artificial heart in, you're basically going to correct the circulatory part. The stroke volume is going to be corrected. But the, the severe vasoconstriction from all these toxic vasopressors and inotropes, you need to be mindful that it's important to basically de-escalate them um, as quickly as you can because the pump is going to provide, if, you, if it's beating at, if you have a 70cc pump and it's beating at 100 times, you're going to get 7 liter cardiac output. It doesn't need high blood pressures. Syncardia actually recommends a maximum systolic blood pressure of 120 to 140 millimeters of mercury um, f- for the safe, um, you know, care of a, a TH patient. So, so post-implant, uh, false weaning from cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, you basically want to de-add the TAH uh, to avoid strokes or any um, emboli to any end organs. Um, and then um, you also, and that's why T, uh, T is also critical. It helps you ensure that the, the Sinhal valves, the mechanical valves are functional. It's a little difficult because the, you know, the cage of the TAH is, it, it's, it's a plastic rigid material, but you can still um, assess. And then you slowly trans, transition support from cardiopulmonary bypass to the total artificial heart. Um, you want sure that the surgeon takes the cross, the cross clamp off in a timely fashion because if the TAH starts, you know, ejecting, but the aortic cross clamp is on, you, you would encounter profound pulmonary edema because you're going to back up all the pressure from the ventricle to the left atrium into the pulmonary, you know, circulation. Uh, and then once you totally get off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, volume management is also critical because uh, the TAH is designed for really low central venous pressures. So actually, our routine practice in Ohio State is when you have a TH patient and they go on bypass, we ultra, we do ultrafiltration so we can basically reduce their uh, preload in anticipation that when we come in off bypass, the goal central venous pressure is supposed to be less than 10 uh, millimeters of mercury. So if a TH patient is in the OR, please be very uh, judicious when you're given fluids. Right. That's really key. Okay. So, you know, we've had a couple real kind of um, important things here to keep in mind. Uh, no swans, very careful with central lines, low CVP. And these are going to apply, obviously, not just during the placement of the TH, but anytime these patients come for surgery, right? You don't want to put a swan in them ever. You want to be either avoid necklines, or if you're going to put one in, be very careful not to put it too far, and then um, keep the CVP low. Um now, what about when you're um, 
thinking about the function and you think, all right, you know, these obviously, like anything, must have potential problems that can arise. What are some common uh, issues that can arise and what should people know about troubleshooting them? Okay. So one of the main complications of the TH is the fact that it has the four mechanical valves, uh, is, uh, hemolysis to certain scale. And as a result, most TH patients have uh, low hemoglobins, low hematocrit, but they tolerate it very well because um, they they have a high cardiac output provided by you know the device. So so when you encounter a TH patient whose uh, hematocrit is like twenty one, uh, you don't necessarily have to transfuse them because you also have to be mindful that these patients are they are being bridged to heart transplantation, and the more expose them to you know blood, the more they may develop you know. Um, high antibody burden, and that would delay, you know, their transplantation. Um, secondly, so other things that you should always think about, if these patients come to the OR and they're a little untyped, you know, their INR is a little on the higher side, be very cautious when you reverse your anticoagulation. I think you should always um, uh, talk to the surgeons that, you know, who implanted advice and basically um, – do an analysis of the risk and benefits of correcting the anticoagulation. If it's hemorrhagic death, that's a different story. But if it's not, then you you don't want to just give FFPs, cryoprecipitate, Kcentra, all these you know uh, factors to patients because you may essentially thrombose either the polyurethane diaphragm or the valves, and the patient may develop a stroke or other thromboembolic complications. So hemolysis. Um, is one of the uh, limitations, um, thromboembolic, you know, complications is also another, you know, complications. And just like anything, you always have to take uh, really uh, sterile precautions when you're doing any procedure because these uh, TAHs can also get infected. So endocarditis is actually having reported in, you know, TAH uh, patients. Um, other complications that you should be aware of is the, so the device is um, the pumps are attached to cannulas, uh, which basically attach to quick, you know, connects to um, the drive line, and the the driver basically delivers compressed air to and from the total artificial heart ventricles through these uh, cannulas, and there are reported cases of fractures of the uh, the cannulas. So if the if the cannula fractures and you lose an air, you really cannot pneumatically. Um, provide uh, any power to essentially add to basically uh, move the diaphragms and provide cardiac output. So all TH patients have a rescue kit. Uh, some of the ways to repair such, you know, um, uh, what you call it, either a cannular um, tear is to just put like, you know, tape on it. Yeah, so they have these heavy duty tape. It's like a kit that you think it looks like something from Home Depot. And they, they, they are trained that if you lose an uh, air pressure, uh, you try to identify the source of the leak and then you tape it, you know, with the tape. And, um, another thing is the diaphragm rupture. So unfortunately, that's something that physiologists, uh, nobody can fix it. So if the inner diaphragm ruptures, air can entrain within the diaphragm and it would, it would manifest as a really low fill volume or a low cardiac output. Unfortunately, only way to treat a diaphragm rupture is to take the patient to cardiac surgery and replace the TAH system. So, uh, there are only 12 cases of diaphragm ruptures out of the over 2000 implants. Uh, it's associated with a high mortality rate. 
um, it's something that you should be aware of if your fill volume, so your cardiac output drastically uh, reduces. Okay. Um, so that would be a cause. Are there other causes of low fill volume that people should be aware of? Yes. Uh, so low fill volumes can be um, if you have, uh, if, you're, if you program, let's say, the heart rate to be, I would say hypothetically, like 160, something like that, um, that would provide a really low diastolic time, right? So the fill volume would be low. If the patient is really hypovolemic from, you know, diarrhea or from bleeding, uh, they would also have low fill volumes. Another critical cause of low fill volumes, this is uh, predominantly occurs during implantation. So the, the pumps are bulky. So the, to index the right pump, the only two pumps, 70cc pump, 50cc pump. So to index the right pump to a patient, we routinely measure the, uh, the distance from the posterior aspect of the sternum to the tent, uh, to T10, to the anterior aspect of the tent, uh, thoracic vertebrae. And if it's 10 centimeters, then the patient is screened in for the 70 cc pump. Uh, if that distance is low, like maybe six, uh, sorry, like seven to eight centimeters, then the patient is screened in for the 50 cc pump. So if you place a bigger pump in the patient that should have been indexed for the smaller pump, the pump may compress the inferior vena cava or it may also compress the left side at pulmonary veins. And that would manifest during chest closure as an acute drop in fill volume. So if you're in the OR and you implant the TAH and everything is going well and all of a sudden your cardiac output drops, your fill volumes drop and your blood pressure drops, uh, it's not about giving, um, obviously you want to support the hemodynamics, but the most, the, 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 the right therapy, look at the transophageal assess the left-sided pulmonary veins, the inferior vena cava, and nine out of 10 times, it will be cause of compression of these structures. Um, and then that's, um, the, the surgeons can, you know, find a way to treat that. Great. All right. I'm assuming that if, if you found a patient down, uh, pulseless, uh, you know, having had a cardiac arrest with one of these in CPR is probably not going to work very well. Is that right? Yes. So CPR is totally ineffective. The, the, the TAH is so rigid, it's not compressible. Uh, you may actually cause more damage if, it, if it's more of a recent implant. Uh, essentially, uh, administering chest, you know, compression aid lead to either a graft, you know, the, uh, the pulmonary artery graft or the aortic graft to either rupture or dislodge from the, the pumps, which may lead to uh, exsanguination. Uh, so the TH patient brings a totally different um, approach to cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Uh, it's more of you look at the device, you make sure if they are not responding nine out of 10 times is either the device can fail, but it's, you know, it's, it's more rare, uh, but it's more, most likely it's a freedom driver with a patient whose battery has lost uh, power. Maybe they've been, you know, walking around for more than three hours and they acutely lose power. So they will be pulseless. And obviously, you know, we're all going to be looking forward to doing CPR. So it doesn't work. Secondly, uh, there's no ventricular arrhythmias. There are no atrial arrhythmias. So if you're doing CPR, if you're doing anything, if you see any noise, administering, you know, defibrillation or pacing is really not going to be effective. This is a plastic rigid 
pump without any AV conduction uh, or any electrical uh, components. It's totally run by air. Oh, if if a patient has pump failure, the on, their only hope would be to very quickly get into the operating room. And and realistically, if this happens out in the world, that's it, right? They're not going to get to a cardiac OR in time. If it happened, you know, as they were going from the OR to the ICU, you could go right back into the OR, I guess. But right, I mean, if this pump fails, it's pretty much they're pretty much going to die. Is that accurate? Yes, that, that that is accurate. Yeah, if it fa- so w- once the pump fails, uh, if you if it's a witness failure, uh, the first thing is to make sure that it, you can get an electrical source and plug the pump in because that's that's the first thing you should always think about. And even when they come, especially for non cardiac uh, surgical procedures, if the patient comes to the OR with a Freedom driver uh, and the pump's working well. Uh, it's really critical to plug it in so you can, you know, so the batteries can charge because, and you can, you can actually, um, there's a, there's a way on the, on the batteries to really assess uh, how much battery life is left, you know, uh, for the patient. The, the device really uses a lot of energy. The compressor uses a lot of energy to deliver, you know, air maybe 120 times a minute to a patient. So uh, energy sources is very, very critical. Uh, but other than that, all the other uh, causes of pump failure, maybe like pump thrombosis uh, or um, let's say uh, a PE, one other thing that can happen is DVT and it embolizes. That can also dislodge it can, you know, dislodge um, into the, the ventricle and then your cardiac output, you know, may stop. But from the operator standpoint, things that we don't want to do to potentially cause pump failure include uh, placing lines, you know, without uh, transophageal echo or fluoroscopic guidance where the, you know, the, the wire can get dislodged in the mechanical valve and the, and the, and the pump essentially stop or placing a swan to monitor, you know, hemodynamics. There's no reason to monitor any pulmonary um, pressures because you have no way of passing swan through the two mechanical valves into uh, the pulmonary circulation. So uh, this is just something that we should all be aware of and not even attempt to do. Right. Are these MRI compatible or no? Uh, no, 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 no. The TH is made of a lot of ferromagnetic material. They're, they're fer- there's fer- ferromagnetic material in multiple parts of the device. So TH patients have no, have no business uh, uh, getting the magne- magnetic uh, resonance imaging. They should either get a CT or just, you know, uh, just regular, you know, uh, radiography, but uh, MRI is an absolute, absolute, you know, contraindication for a TAH patient. Right. All right. That's really important. All right. So we've talked a lot about kind of what general anesthesiologists who might see a patient with a TAH need to keep in mind. No MRIs, no swans, lines in the neck need to either not be put in or put in really high and, and watched very carefully. Hemodynamic goals, as we've talked about, you want to not have them have a really high afterload. CVP needs to be low. Try to avoid transfusion. They can, they can, they're going to be anemic and they're okay there because they have a high cardiac output. Um, we talked about the importance of plugging in the driver if they have a freedom driver. Um, anything we didn't mention that you think is really important, Mike, for other than those things for folks out there to know? I mean, I think we've, you know, covered, uh, I think we've covered it comprehensively. I'm trying to recall what we, we, we've done, but, um, it's, I, I just want people to understand also, yeah, the, the, 
the hemodynamic management is really critical. Uh, just one blood pressure of 140 over 80 is profound hypertension for a TH patient. Um, and a CVP of, you know, greater than eight is really central venous hypertension for TH patients. So, so just it's important to really get these uh, fundamental hemodynamics in the back of your mind whenever you encounter these patients. Because if you're just given fluids because, oh, you know, my urine output is low, your urine output actually may be low because of a cardiorenal issue. Because if that CVP is 10, you're creating a lot of back pressure on the kidneys. So the, the transrenal perfusion is actually going to be on the lower end. And that would actually be the cause of the renal failure and not because of quote unquote high, you know, a pre-renal hypovolemic um, issue. So it's very critical for us to not use our, our native hemodynamics that we use for uh, the native heart and apply the same to the total artificial heart. It's really a totally physiologically different uh, mechanical circulatory support. Um, and also one other thing is uh, for LVADs, we always train that it has, you know, the LVAD is susceptible to suction events where it, if, if your preload is low, it may suck down and induce right ventricular dysfunction. Uh, the total artificial heart has no, there's no risk for a quote unquote suction event. It basically, what comes in is what it's going to eject out. Mike, this has been super interesting and useful. I'm sure this people will really uh, appreciate all this. Thank you so much. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. You've made some famous ones in the past. Uh, what do you have to recommend to folks today? Uh, this is a good one. Uh, my wife and kids made me go watch uh, Top Gun Maverick. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Tom Cruise was on a different level. So if anybody has any time, I really recommend that they watch this movie. Oh. I, I, we were talking offline and I still will say I'm so jealous. I've been wanting to see this ever since it came out. Haven't found the time yet, but I'm definitely planning on going. Um, huge fan of the original. Can't wait to see this one. Um, I'm going to recommend uh, the final season of um, the show. This is us. I don't know, Mike, do you watch this is us? Have you ever watched it? No, I haven't seen it. It is. It's, it's been eight. This is the eighth, eighth and final season. It is one of the most well done, um, just uh, engaging shows that I've ever watched. My wife and I have been watching it for eight years. It's incredibly um, well-made, powerful, emotional. I actually was talking to a colleague a few years ago. I asked if he watched it. He said I, he started watching it for the first few seasons, and he had to stop because it was he was so emotionally tied up in the show that he was just too disturbing. Like he couldn't he couldn't handle that he was like crying half the time he watched it. Um, and it's, it really is like you really uh, get to know the characters and feel close to them. They're wonderful actors. Um, anyway, the final season was really well done. Uh, I thought they ended it well. And um, I highly recommend the whole show. And, and then, of course, the final season, This Is Us. Um, so check it out. Um, all right, Mike, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And uh, we'll have you again soon. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a privilege to be on Act. It's really a great resource for education. Thank you. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well.
If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.